Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, again, good morning, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. I also would encourage you to watch this all the way through uh, because I think it's important for us to see at the very end how things wrap up together. And so uh, I don't do that uh, by way of commercial to you. I just do that because I don't want you to miss all the things that I believe that God is trying to to teach us through this lesson in Acts chapter 1. Today we're going to begin in verse 12. We'll get there in just a few moments. Now, I want to start by reminding you that people have always been waiting on Jesus, and some of them didn't even know that they were waiting on Jesus. But, you know, uh, God made us. We sinned against Him. Uh, death came into the human condition as a result of that sin. And uh, a promise was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God was going to put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, and that the seed of the woman would eventually triumph over the seed of Satan. And uh, so this is the very first giving of the gospel in all of scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 that God is going to send a redeemer. And so that sets into consequence a series of uh, events where we're waiting for this redeemer to come and to to triumph over our sin and ultimately over, over death. And so uh, the promise was made that Jesus was coming. How long did they have to wait for that? Well, believe it or not, they had waited for four thousand years for the coming of Jesus. That is that is not a small amount of waiting. And while they were waiting, I want you to listen, even though they were waiting for the Messiah to be born, to come, to win, to triumph, uh, there was a lot of work to be done in the meantime. There were many, many commands that God gave to His people while they were waiting. Uh, there, there were responsibilities. There were things to celebrate. There were laws to keep. There was a, a message to be given out. There, there were many, many things for them to do while they were waiting. And then Jesus comes. We know He lives without sin. He dies for sin. He rises from the dead. And we see Him on the in the opening pages of Acts. He appears to these folks for 40 days. So at the resurrection... Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus comes back to them and for forty for forty days, and, and he evidences to them his resurrection. And he told them, "Here it is. It's it's all done. It's all completed. You're going to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world and and everywhere." And I know we talk about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts, and we kind of roll that out. But what if Jesus is talking about for just all people, you know, the people you know and the people you don't, the people that you live near and the people that are our neighbors? And and Samaria, this wasn't just the next region out. These were their enemies. And so the gospel is not just for the people you know. It's for the people you don't know. It's for the people you love and the people you don't love. It's for the people that you have relationships with and people on the other side of the globe. So the gospel is for everyone. And now I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And the first thing that I want you to do when you go is wait. Wait some more. Wait, wait, wait. But I want you to remember, uh, you know, even with the going, now we have to wait. Even in the waiting, there's a lot of work to be done while we wait. So the first thing that I want you to write down is waiting for Jesus isn't doing nothing. 
waiting for Jesus isn't doing nothing. So let's read in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 12. And I just want to prepare you. Well, maybe I should have prepared myself, but it's going to be convicting, uh, at least for me. And uh, I have a suspicion that maybe, maybe for all of us. But let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, which is not very far. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So I want to set the stage for you really quick. You can go to Matthew chapter 28, and you can see a parallel passage of not quite the ascension, but at least of the commission of Jesus to the disciples. In, in, uh, and we're going to look at this in a little later, but Matthew chapter 28, go ahead and slip your finger in there because we, we can turn over there relatively quickly, and I want you to see some things there. So all of these... Luke tells Theophilus, all of these are with one accord and devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Uh, Sometimes Jesus commands us to wait. We always say that sometimes God answers prayer. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. But what what do we do when we wait for empowerment matters. What we do while we wait for empowerment matters. So they're gathering in the upper room. Remember, they are not indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet. This is a flat room home on top of which they would have built a pretty simple structure. This is where you can have guests to stay that are not staying in your home. They can stay on your roof. But there's a there's a a somewhat accommodations uh, there. You could use it for meetings, for events. You could rent it out to people who are passing through town. Uh, These tended to be not very nice circumstances. They were not the best conditions and and this was a place that oftentimes poor people would rent. Luke gives us the list of those that are there and there's one group that is particularly noteworthy and that's Mary the mother of Jesus and Jesus's brothers. Now for those of you who are watching and have been watching that may not be a Christian yet uh, you may be skeptical, you may be curious, and you may you may uh, wonder what your next step may be. I want to I want to remind you of something, and certainly for those of you who are already Christians, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything to the born again believer, to the Christian. Uh, it means everything, and I know it is the the largest hurdle that non Christians have to jump in order to become a Christian, because the resurrection is so. Uh, impossible. It's not even implausible. It's impossible. But that's the main reason why it is so important is because it is miraculous. So because it is so outlandish, many people try to soften the blow of Jesus 
by talking about what a great man he was, what a great uh, teacher he was, what a good person Jesus was, and how much he cared for people. And it's obvious how much he cared when you read his teachings. And so we talk about the teachings of Jesus. And there are many people who admire and follow Jesus's teachings, Jesus's morality. But when it comes to the resurrection, I just can't follow Jesus himself. Because if you follow Jesus into the resurrection, you have to experience a resurrection of your own, which is a a, a spirit in you that becomes alive. And it changes everything. You can follow the teachings of Jesus and it doesn't necessarily change anything. But if you follow Jesus into the resurrection, it changes everything. So if you are struggling with the resurrection because it's so impossible, just know you're in good company. Uh, but it is the resurrection. And I, and I don't believe, I know the Christians sometimes get a hard hit because, uh, you know, we're just, we're just weak-minded and, you know, we need a crutch uh, for our, for our weak-mindedness. And, and so we turn to Christ. But I, I want you to know that uh, Christianity uh, is, is not for weak-minded people. There's, there's a, a great deal of reason and evidence. I'm a very skeptical person by nature. And there is, it's the evidence of the resurrection that compels me to believe. Uh, I don't just find it compelling. I don't find it to be just a curious story. But there are reasons. There's evidences. There's historical evidence uh, that's just too compelling for me uh, when you put it all together in one case. One of those is right here. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers are gathered together with the early church. Now, remember, it was only 40 days ago that these men, well, not even that long, uh, several several weeks now, that they were locked in an upper room because they were so terrified of death. Uh, and here we have just, you know, six weeks, uh, five weeks later, we have them worshiping Jesus in this upper room, just post his ascension. Uh, It's one thing for the disciples to be doing this. It's another thing for Mary and Jesus' brothers to be doing it. For, For Mary to be worshiping her son, their big brother, and calling him the creator, the Lord, the God, the Savior, the sinless King, and the Christ. These are all of these are devout Jewish people. And they know that if you get the wrong God, then you're going to hell when you die. So this is paramount of importance to get this right. So how many of you mothers think that your children are the very best? And of course, most mothers think that. But how many of you mothers would worship publicly your son as some, well, and some may accuse you of worshiping your children, but how many of you would acknowledge that your children are sinless deity? I mean, you would never say publicly, yes, my son has never sinned. My son is God. But here you have Mary worshiping Jesus as God. By the way, this is the last time we see Mary in the New Testament. But in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and then again in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it gives us the list, at least a partial list, of Jesus' brother's names. 
there's at least five brothers listed there. And, uh, and elsewhere, it talks about Jesus' sisters, which I don't mean to play semantics, but is a plural word. And it would imply that there were at least two sisters. So Jesus had at least five brothers and at least two sisters. So that's eight kids in this family. Jesus is obviously the oldest. He's the firstborn. He had no earthly father. Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, uh, enjoyed normal marital relations. They had at least five boys, at least two girls. And these younger brothers are worshiping their big brother as God. Now, I have one sister, and she's 17 years younger than me. And because of that age gap, she has tended to put me most of her life, probably not now, in kind of a different uh, realm, uh, not seeing things very clearly. And, and, and so, of course, there are times when she may or your siblings may look at you and kind of put you on a little higher pedestal than you needed to be. But to claim that your big brother is deity is a whole nother realm. Now, if you were to ask my sister, do you think your brother is something special? She might would say, my brother is the best brother in the whole wide world. But if you said, if you say that he is God, we will kill you. Immediately, she would say, he's not that great. Uh, Let me tell you all of the terrible things that he has done. Uh, it wouldn't take very long to recant. And so I don't mean to make a whole lot of this, but I'm just thinking about Jesus's brothers who are willing to say, you know what, after the, after the resurrection, now the ascension, I am convinced my big brother is not worthy of a pedestal. My big brother is the creator of all things. I want to be known with this group that is following him. This is incredible evidence to me. So two of these brothers is uh, James and Jude. James becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Jude also becomes a pastor. James most likely is the author of the book of James, and Jude is the author of the book of Jude. So not only did these men follow their big brother as God, they later pastored churches and led other people to believe the evidence. Not only that, but both of these men's men were eventually executed because they refused to recant that their big brother was much more than that. They were convinced that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah, the one promised, the one they had been waiting on. Compelling evidence. Well, so typically we gather in big groups on Sundays. Uh, I still feel like we're gathered together, even though it's remote. But we gather in large groups on Sundays and small groups during the week called connect groups. Now, let me just take a moment and say, if you are not a part of one of those, I encourage you to make sure call us this week so that we can help you get plugged in to a group of people who are working through things and learning and and sharing with each other and, and growing together. I hope that you will take part of that group leaders. Let me just really quick, I'm going to put a pin in this sermon and just say this. We've been, I've been watching the trends nationwide of evangelical churches and how they're trying to communicate with their church. And while uh, content viewing is through the roof for most churches, uh, initially when the coronavirus hit, there was this desire to be unique and creative and to stay connected with a small group of people. But weeks three, four, five, 
has really started seeing diminishing returns. People are not seeing group life all the way through. And I will admit, many of us have been guilty of maybe taking it for granted or not doing our due diligence. And so I want to encourage you as group leaders to make sure that you're staying connected uh, with your people and text them. You don't have to do a Zoom meeting or even a Facebook viewing or any of those sorts of things. Just make sure that people are staying connected to one another and encouraging one another. And I also want to say, again, if you're not a part of one of our connect groups, or maybe you're interested in leading one. Give me a give me a call or some kind of communication. Let me know that. We'll put you on the fast track, share with you what the responsibilities are of that to see if you might be ready. Because I will say this, connect groups going forward are going to be a very vital part of what we do as a church. And so let me encourage you to be a part of those. But God's people are to be a gathering people. And I hear people say, I don't have to be a Christian uh, or I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Uh, So let me say this again. God's people are a communal people. It is in God's DNA. And so if you belong to Him, He puts His DNA in you. And so being a communal person is in your DNA because you belong to Him and you belong to one another. So uh, here you're going to read in verse 15. in, In just a moment, we're going to read it. Uh, that there are how many people in this early church? Uh, Well, verse 15 says there's about 120. Now, here's what I find very interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I love how many times Paul says, in accordance to the Scriptures, the Scripture might be fulfilled. And that He appeared to Cephas. Cephas is actually Peter. And then to the twelve all of them together. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So if you want to go and interview those 500, they'll, they will tell you that they saw Jesus after his crucifixion uh, and, uh, and, and after his, his resurrection. And, and so upwards of 500 people at a time saw him. In Acts chapter 1, it tells us over the course of 40 days, Jesus revealed himself to large groups and small groups. What this means is that hundreds, maybe even thousands of people over the course of those 40 days, I don't know how many times Jesus appeared to many groups, but at least one time 500 people were there. He may have appeared many, many more times to lesser large groups. We have no idea. But Jesus revealed himself to many, many believers during those days. But the odd thing to me, so this is where we go back to Matthew chapter 28. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, just before the giving of the Great Commission, it says that Jesus is appearing to them in a resurrected form. All the the, uh, 11 disciples are there and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. And this is where Jesus gives them the Great Commission. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, Cut scene from Matthew. It's the end of the book. Luke tells us some more. Mark tells us some more. But here Luke tells us in the book of Acts, this is a continuation of the ascension. So when they had left Olivet, when Jesus ascended, there wasn't just 11 because when they came back into Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, there was at least 120 of them that went went up to the upper room. 120 people made, made that trek and were there together. My question is this. If Jesus appeared to 500 people there in Jerusalem and around Galilee, over these 40 days, and maybe even thousands of people over the course of that 40 days, where are they? 
Why aren't they there together? If Jesus appeared to 500 people and there's only 120 in the room, why aren't these people following Him? They may have worshipped Him, but obviously many doubted. So, I'm not saying that maybe they weren't, you know, really truly believers. I'm just saying that sometimes it's not about being proven that Jesus is resurrected because they saw Him. Sometimes it's not my mind can't get there. Sometimes it's my heart don't want it. Sometimes it's my heart doesn't want to believe the truth. So I love my life a whole lot more than I love Jesus' life. And so though I know Jesus was born, uh, Jesus was resurrected, uh, I just, I really want to do what I want to do. I don't want to surrender to His authority. This is not new. And as we wrestle with that, this is not new. This has been going on since the very beginning. In fact, there's been a recent poll that was done that said that 85% of non-Christians say that there is credible evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the evidence isn't the issue. In fact, I'll just quote, I'm not a Christian because I don't, because I want to do what I want to do. So Jesus rises from the dead and many see him, but only a few follow him. And they stay gathered together as God's people. And let me remind you, we need to gather together. Now, we're not gathered together right now, but we need to gather together. And they did it on the first day of the week. We need to gather together on the first day of the week as well. At least that time to keep sacred under the Lord. We need to gather together in community. And we don't only need to do that for community's sake. Now, I want you to keep staying with me here. We want to shift gears a little bit. We need to do it for faith's sake. I think if there's one detriment to the modern Christian church is that we love being together because it's a safe place for us to be. We don't get together and strategize for war. That's what the early church was doing. They were strategizing for war because they had devoted themselves to the mission of Jesus Christ, which was to make disciples of all the nations. To me, that is not the DNA of the modern church. And this virus and this isolation and this process that we've been going through has simply reminded me that we've not done what we ought to do as individuals and even as a church. What binds us together, though, is not these walls. It's the Spirit of God. It's the mission of Jesus Christ. And we need to find ways to gather, even if we can't do it face to face. We need to gather together not to just avoid being lonely, not just so that people can be cared for. Those are good reasons, but they do fail to accomplish the mission, the main reason of, of uh, Jesus' mission and the main reason of God's people gathering together. I, I know we miss each other. I, mean, I, miss, I miss you. I love you. But I know that we miss each other. But we, what, what we need to be missing right now is the, the lack of, of the, the joined effort of being on mission with Jesus Christ. That's where our tension ought to be right now. Not that something was taken away from us or we can't meet inside of a building that we pay for, but the work of Jesus Christ is not being done communally together. That's what we ought to be missing. So we need to be missing the mission of Jesus Christ. And while we wait, we need to be busy. So what do they do next? I'm shifting pretty hard and fast here. What do they do next? 
they pray. Now listen, this is very convicting for me. I, I'm someone who, you know, while waiting, I, I, don't, uh, I don't like to waste time. Uh, when I know that something needs to be done, I, I really want it to be accomplished. Uh, I, like, I like to do work. Uh, and there has never been greater work given to this first church than what Jesus just told them to do. And they got a lot of work to do. In fact, he's, he's telling 120 people to reach the nations with the gospel. They have a lot to do. But he tells them to wait. But listen, they're not wasting their time while they're waiting. They're investing their time in prayer. In fact, it says it this way, devoting themselves to prayer. This issue of devotedness is not a single prayer. It's not a one-time prayer that was going on. It was devoted to prayer. It was constant prayer. It was integrated into their daily life. It was their priority. It was involved in the course of their day. It was not a result of an empowerment of the Holy Spirit because He had not indwelt them yet. It was a practice of spiritual disciplines. Now, if the Holy Spirit were to empower us and force us to pray, that would be one thing. But it seems to me, at least in the early church, before they received the Holy Spirit, they devoted themselves to prayer already. So I would say this is an admonition to us as a church. We can't wait for the Holy Spirit to impress upon us the need to pray. It needs to be an active part of our regular spiritual discipline. And they're not praying, and no offense uh, implied here whatsoever, there's a part of this that gets played out. But they weren't praying for sick people. They weren't praying for breakthroughs in their own personal life. They were praying for God to release them into the world. They were praying for opportunities. They were praying for boldness. They were praying for confidence. They were praying for one another's empowerment. Now we know this doesn't happen until the Feast of Pentecost, which is on the 50th day after Passover. So for Jesus appeared to them for 40 days. This is the day that we're at right now. Ten days from now is when they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. So my math, according to my math, they're, they're in prayer together for ten days. What happens tends to happen in Christianity is that they are prayers and they are doers. Most people find themselves in one of those two camps. And prayer can be a real divider in a church. Or it can be a real uniter in a church. It's a divider because, you know, you got your prayers who would say, pray, why wouldn't you find value in prayer? Why are there only a few people praying? Why is no one taking prayer seriously? They get frustrated when other Christians don't take prayer seriously. And then there are the doers who get frustrated at the prayers because all the prayers want to do is sit around and talk to God and they don't want to do anything. Well, here's the truth. God wants us to pray and do. But more importantly, He wants us to pray before we do. God is calling them to bring the gospel to the nations and God is telling them that they are not ready to do that yet, that He is going to send the Holy Spirit And then He tells them to wait on the Holy Spirit. And while they wait, they pray. So there's work for us to do. But it has to be preceded by praying. And church, you know we have not done that like we should. I'm confessing it now, and I am calling us to repentance over that. We may pray for the sick, or we may pray for uncomfortable issues that come up in people that we love in their life. 
But we don't pray for wisdom of how to disciple people. We don't pray for breakthroughs and that God would give us wisdom to break through in people's lives to be able to present them with the gospel. We'll, we, we make excuses while we're not on mission with Jesus Christ. We don't pray to see a true movement of God. We don't pray to see a real revolution and an outpouring of His blessing and a harvest of souls. I mean praying for an empowering, praying for His anointing, praying for an appointment to be able to bring people to the truth of Jesus Christ. No, we hide behind our doing. We hide behind our doing and most of our doing is in the flesh, not through an empowerment of the Spirit. We don't pray for wisdom and how to get into the highways, into the hedges to reach our neighborhoods in the river valley to Christ. But we must begin to devote ourselves to this cause because prayer, listen, only prayer empowers the doing. Prayer empowers the doing. All the doing. Everything that a church accomplishes is empowered through the prayer. And so we often do and we ask God to bless it. But He wants us to realize His blessing first and His direction, His guidance, and then to do it. Now just praying alone isn't what God wants us to do. God also wants to work through His people, all His people. Uh, But first His people need to gather together and pray for a movement. Right now we may not be able to gather the way we would like to gather together. But I wonder if we're taking the opportunities available to us now in our homes, in our life groups, on online, uh, in prayer. You know, we say that we're staying strong, but are we praying with our families, men, husbands, dads? Are you praying with your family? Are you leading them uh, into a new realization of an explosion kind of a ministry for your family and through your church? Working without the direction, the boldness, confidence, clarity, assurance, and guidance that comes, empowerment that comes from praying. You know, you could pick the wrong work. You could do the wrong thing. You could uh, follow the wrong leaders, do it the wrong way, do it at the wrong time. Make all kinds of mistakes. This is why we should go to the Lord in prayer first and pray until He speaks. Pray until He reveals Himself. Prayer wasn't a waste of time. Prayer was invested time. And obviously, these prayers were honored by God. Here's the reality of prayer. There are two kingdoms. There's this kingdom of this world and there's God's kingdom. Our sin put a veil between those two kingdoms, between this kingdom and that kingdom. But Jesus took on flesh and He bridged those two worlds. He went back into the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly realm, but He left the Spirit to dwell within us. So now there is only one portal between these two kingdoms. So if you live in the kingdom of this world, there's only one way into the kingdom of God, and that is through the portal that Jesus Christ made us. And the only way through that portal right this very moment is prayer. This is why Jesus is called our mediator. Jesus is called our high priest because He carries that to the Father. Yes, we pray in the Spirit, but we pray through the Son, through that portal into that kingdom, and our prayers go right before Jesus Himself, and He is our intercessor and relays those prayers to the Father. When we pray, we're communicating from our world into His world, 
and somehow I can speak and God can hear and I can take requests and needs and fears and frustrations and longings and I can communicate to God that living, loving, heavenly Father who has given me His Spirit, a resurrected Spirit, so that I can have the Holy Spirit and have a communal relationship with Him. Prayers that can be heard require a mediator, someone who has passed through to connect us to God, to connect this world to its Creator, to connect this fallen physical world to that flawless spiritual world that He lives in. And that's Jesus. He's our mediator. Listen to this. This is Write this down. A lack of praying reveals how little we value Jesus' empowerment. How little we pray, a lack of praying reveals how little we value Jesus' empowerment. One more thing, 252 times about prayer, 252 times in Scripture the word pray, prayer, or prayed is used in Scripture. Just in the Gospels alone, the word pray, or any variation of it, is found 46 times. Now I want you to look this up. I want you to make sure that this is right. Of every time that prayer is used in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about prayer, or Jesus is praying, or the Scriptures is referencing Jesus' prayer. In Acts chapter 1, when they devoted themselves to prayer, it's the first evidence of the disciples praying with or without Jesus. They even said, teach us to pray, but there's no evidence that they ever prayed apart from Jesus. Jesus was always the prayer leader. He always modeled the praying. Here is the first time that they pray. They finally are realizing the importance of prayer. And here's why. Jesus has slipped now into the heavenly realm and they realize they cannot do life without him. They don't want to do life without Him. And so they pray. They gather together because they need each other. But they pray because they still need Jesus. And so I would say to us, the same thing is true. We gather together because we need each other. We're on mission together to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To help people find and follow Jesus. But we pray because we need Jesus to be with us and He will never leave us or forsake us. And we experience that relationship through prayer. And as we pray to Him and we pour ourselves out to Him and we surrender to Him and we submit ourselves to Him, He is able then to communicate back to us through His, His Word. And so prayer doesn't unleash God to do something. We're not releasing God to do something. We're actually asking God to help us to be something for His glory. Prayer is when we communicate to heaven. Reading Scripture is when heaven communicates back to us. So one of the greatest misnomers of prayer is that prayer actually empowers God to act. Prayer doesn't empower God to act. Prayer changes me. Because as I'm communicating to God all of my frustrations, all of my fears, all my feelings, as I'm communicating to Him my sin and my regrets, He's able to replace those things and He's able to renew a right mind within me. So they're gathering, they're praying, and the result is oneness. Oneness. If there's one thing I want you to hear today, it's this. Prayer and gathering is unifying. It says, there they were, what's the word, with one accord. Jesus prayed His last prayer on earth, in fact, and recorded for us in John chapter 17, His longest prayer, is that they would be one. And here they are, right out of the gate, 120 of them, are praying 
and it brings one accord to them. So let me ask you, what comes first, praying or oneness? This is so important to prayer. We don't just pray with people who are believers that we already are unified with. That's what we're guilty of. We pray with all people so that we might become unified with them. Pray for so that you can pray with. I want you to write that down. Pray for so that you can pray with. Here's a little equation I want to give you. Gathering plus praying equals unity. Gathering plus plus praying equals unity. In his first public sermon, Jesus told us to love our enemies. Now, it's easy to say you love your enemies when you don't have to deal with them, when you can keep them at arm's length. But Jesus goes one step further and he says, and pray for them. You know how hard it is to pray for your enemies? But Jesus knows this. When you begin to pray for someone, you can eventually pray with someone. And when you pray with someone, you can be united with them in mission the gospel of Jesus Christ because prayer is a uniter, not a divider. So there's two people. They're both Christians. They don't get along very well. What do they do? They need to pray for each other and then pray with each other. Maybe a husband and wife. Maybe you've been quarantined in your home and you've realized some things in your marriage and you're working through it. But let me encourage you. There is no way to work through it. Pray for one another and pray with one another. It will unite you. Maybe families are in discord right now. Pray for, then pray with, and you'll find oneness. Maybe, maybe you have an enemy or, or someone, you know, even in times where there's church strife, what we ought to do is gather together and, and learn to pray for. So listen, if you have an enemy, if you have someone you don't like to be around, someone who just, yeah, just, just really gives you, gives you a difficult time in your life, Let me encourage you, right now is the perfect time to pray for them. Jesus knows if you pray for people, they won't stay your enemy. You'll develop a heart for them. And you say, I don't want a heart for them. Then that's not the heart of Jesus. We need to pray about that as well. Pray with Jesus so that we can be one with Him. Then we can pray for our enemies. We can pray with them. And then we can be on mission, all of us united together. So incredibly important for us to learn this truth. So this is the last thing that I want you to write down and I'm going to close. In our relationships, in our relationships, we don't have a unity problem. We have prayer problems. We don't have unity problems. We have prayer problems. So they're not wasting their time. They're investing their time because they're about to go through the most tension that people can possibly go through. But you'll start watching Jerusalem being the headquarters and as missionaries go out, they always come back to Jerusalem to be encouraged because there was a nucleus there that couldn't be thwarted. So they start with prayer and then immediately... uh, When when this particular prayer was over, Peter stood up. Peter was the leader of the group now. Uh, not self-appointed, Jesus appointed him. There was no vote. But Peter gets up, he opens up the scriptures, and he begins to reveal uh, the truth of some prophecies about replacing Judas. Judas is one of the greatest failed leaders of all time. And it's so interesting to me that it's Peter. Because remember, just 40 days ago, Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was. And now here he is leading with the authority of God's word, united 
with the very people that he rejected that he knew. And, uh, you know, the, the difference between Peter's sin and Judas's sin is Peter took his sin to Jesus. Judas took his sin to the grave. It's the biggest difference. Uh, I think of the regret. Uh, Judas, Judas was never a believer. We know that I'm convinced of that. Uh, this was not a matter of losing salvation and all that. This was a matter of misunderstanding Jesus. This was a matter of I'm convinced of who he is, but my heart doesn't want what he's offering. But here we have Peter. And after he rejects Jesus, the very first encounter, he, he, Jesus and he, he are at the beach and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And through a series of conversations there, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, here Peter is feeding Jesus' sheep, establishing them in their first step toward empowerment. And, uh, and I think of what a, what a redemption story of a man like Peter who knew what to do with Jesus gathered together with the body of Christ, praying with them, becoming one with Jesus, becoming one with the new church, and being able to understand the Scriptures and changing the world. Within just 18 years, the Bible says that they turned the world upside down. So, you know, I just want to be, an, I want to be encouragement. I want the Word of God to be an encouragement to us this morning. I want us to understand the value in gathering together and being in relationships and to understand the true value of prayer and, and the importance of being one with one another on mission that Jesus Christ has given us. This is not about following His teaching. This is about following Jesus Himself and modeling making disciples. Many of us aren't even disciples yet. Never been discipled. Well, I'm committed. We're going to change that. I want us to be disciples who make disciples, a church that plants churches. I want us to be a people who redeems of people. And God has now resurrected our dead spirits so that we are on mission to help resurrect the dead spirits in people all around us. We're empowered, brothers and sisters. It starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. And so I want us to be serious about praying for a movement, for God to use us, for God to encourage us, for God to give us boldness, for God to give us confidence so that we can see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word. We pray that as, as it goes out now all around the world that You would be glorified, that You would unite Your people together. Even if we're not in one room, You would unite our hearts and our hearts would burn with anticipation of when we can be on mission for You. We love You, Lord, and I pray while we are waiting, I pray that we won't do nothing, that we'll be investing our time in seeking you. Lord, we thank you for establishing yourself in us. And now may we uh, establish you in this, in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.